do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of I Love Data Centers. I have here with me on this episode, Ryan Barbera, CEO and co-founder of Data Canopy. Ryan, for those who don't know who you are, can you speak a little bit about who you are and what you do and what Data Canopy does? And then we can dig into uh, into the good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Sean, thank you for, for having me on. I'm actually really excited about this. And um, you know, I'm excited to talk about, about Data Center. Um, uh, I am a CEO of Data Canopy. Data Canopy is a hybrid infrastructure uh, IaaS provider. Uh, we are based in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, but we have offices uh, all over the U.S. and uh, in China. Now, um, we focus really heavily on the uh, integration between Colo and cloud and everything else in that stack, and we service uh, both commercial, uh, state and local, and federal clients. Thank you, sir, for that. And where, where are you physically located right now? I am in our uh, HQ in uh, Columbia, Maryland. So uh, we are about halfway between D.C. and Baltimore. And I am physically in my office today looking out the window. And it is a really gorgeous, crisp fall day today. So it's, uh, it's nice. My favorite time of year. That's glad to hear. Uh, or I'm glad to hear it. I know you travel frequently just as I do. So I'm sure your, your family appreciates the fact that you're finally home and in the office. Yeah, I, I, I think my kids love it. I, I'm not sure about my wife, but no, I'm just kidding. It's, 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 it's great. And um, you, you get it, man. It's just, it's always nice to, to be at home and have some of the comforts of, of, uh, of your local, local grocery store, house, and car. So, where did you grow up in that area? Uh, so, you know, this is as much home now as anything else. I actually grew up uh, in Colorado Springs, so I grew up out west. And uh, we moved out here when I was a teenager. Uh, my dad, his job uh, moved him, and uh, we ended up in the Washington, D.C. area. So I actually went to high school um, in, uh, in Montgomery County, which is a suburb of D.C., and then I uh, went to uh, college at the University of Maryland. So I, I've been here a little bit over 20 years now, so, uh, so I consider this home now, but I, I actually originally am from Colorado. 
Gotcha. And what what brought your dad from Colorado to DC? If you don't mind me asking. No, not at all. So he uh, was part of um, uh, he's a government contractor or was at that time, and uh, this was uh, really shortly after the end of the Cold War, and there was a lot of things shifting in terms of uh, collapsing from some of the contractors, and uh, my dad position uh, effectively went away and he found a job with a really large international company here in uh, Arlington called ABB, which I don't even think they're around there anymore. And, um, and it was the opportunity he needed. So Colorado Springs um, actually has the largest um, uh, army base in the country, Fort Carson. And uh, the, the town is very reliant on or at the time it was, it's changed a little bit now, but it was very re- reliant on military and military contracting. And so uh, anytime there's any changes to that, the city tends to go through a bit of a, a downturn. And uh, that was kind of the impetus for my dad to, to move us. And what, so for me, it was having a dad that was, uh, man, he was a, a manager of broker-dealer clearing exchanges on the Chicago Board of Trade and Chicago Options Exchange. Um, and he was there as all these different exchanges were migrating from uh, you know, physical people on the floor making those transactions on paper tickets to digital and electronic format. That's what exposed me early on to, to tech. I'm curious if you had a similar dynamic as you were growing up that got you exposed to technology and, and what's going on in that space. No, that, that's actually interesting. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, so uh, to a degree, I would say yes. Yeah. So um, shortly after we moved to the East Coast, ABB uh, went through some changes, and um, my dad decided that it was kind of time to take his own future into his hands, and he became a uh, co-founder and a partner in a company called Sphere Technologies. And Sphere um, uh, was effectively a transportation management software package. So they were leveraging things like Oracle. It was an early integrated DBA platform to work with um, with transportation systems, so Amtrak, light rail, that kind of stuff. And he was a co-founder in that. So I had never had a lot of exposure really to, to technology, um, but he actually uh, co-founded that. And, you know, he was really more on the operations side, um, but uh, fundamentally, you know, just watching him do that got me exposed to, uh, to technology. And I'm, that's actually... To this day, I still have a lot of, you know, memorabilia, for lack of a better term, from from Sphere. Um, and I think that also was kind of where I got introduced a little bit to entrepreneurship. It was, um, you know, watching my dad take a leap and a plunge and 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 go do that was something that, um, to this day, resonates uh, very clearly in my memory. Yeah, that's interesting. My uh, my father went along a very similar path uh, when I was young starting his own firm as well uh which is what led me down my path as well i'm what was the first video game console that you remember having back in the day oh man i i was a donkey i had an atari um and then and then nes and then a super nes and then sega um and you know everything between there and here so uh, so I, my favorite game, like, uh, you're supposed to say something like Vanguard or pole position, but my favorite game was actually Muppets in space. Cause I just really liked the Muppets. And, um, I just remember like cranking on that game, uh, a ton when I was a kid. So. Muppets in space. Do it's you, do it's you, a classic. I'm going to totally do a sidebar here, but I just listened to a, uh, a 
interview in an episode about the creation of E.T. for the Atari. Yeah, and, the first and, Easter egg was in that game. Yeah, it was one of the worst video games ever. Um, but yeah. I, do, I remember playing that game for so freaking long, and there were so many glitches in that game that would take you back to the beginning. It just pissed me off that I just stopped playing it after like a week, after logging so many goddamn hours. But there was a, there's a great, I think it's um, How I Built This episode, uh, that's just on that on that topic of that game and how it was created, or maybe how things are made. Anyway, it's it's one of those podcast episodes. It was pretty classic. Brought me back to those days. Um, that, that's pretty cool. And I think you and I are about the same age. So we probably had some very similar experiences when it came to that. And I I remember growing up, and it's a little bit different now because there's so like video games are just so ubiquitous, right, with everybody. But I remember growing up, it was like. It was like a big deal, man. And we had like Nintendo Power magazines and there was a hotline that you could call when you got stuck yep. at a certain spot in the game. And uh, I remember my first, uh, my I guess they call them RPGs now, but my first role-player game was Dragon Warrior. I don't know if you ever played that. but I don't remember that one. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was like looking back on it now, it's funny, but, um, you know, and we could not get past like these, certain monsters that we had to fight and we would be up all night spending the night at each other's houses and calling Nintendo power to get to these parts of the game. So like that stuff that those are, those are really good memories for me. Like that's, that's definitely a part of my childhood. I enjoyed a lot. Yeah. I'm going to do one more geeky remember remembrance here, but I got Sim, uh, Sim city for the, uh, IBM, I forget which, uh, which IBM it was, but it was basically a word processing device that I was using at my house. And that's what really got me geeking out and trying to figure out what the DOS prompt was and trying to figure out all the different languages so that I could tool around with the thing to get it to work. And I could not, for the life of me, get the screen. It was always jarbled and would not show up right. And I kept having my dad bring the friggin' big box IBM uh, desktop from our home back to the office and he'd take the train to work every day. And he did that two or three times until finally he just said, screw this, I need you to talk to the people uh at my office who were all the geeks and whatnot and as i started talking to him it dawned on me that it might be the connection that goes from the monitor back into the the desktop and i tweak with that sure enough that worked and so i felt i will always remember to this day i feel as i remember the memory i feel bad about having my dad waste so many hours lugging this thing back and forth just to try to get that one little fix figured out but he relied on me to teach him how all this stuff works so that he could then communicate with the people that he had in his office. But that's, that's how I kind of got to become the geek that I, one of the reasons that I got to become the geek that I am today. But following that along that journey. That's a good story. Yeah. Following along that journey, uh, for you, um, did you, did you, would, were your parents embracing tech? Did they bring home, you know, word processing devices for you to use for school and whatnot? No. In fact, you know, my my journey with technology really started um, post college. Um, I I've always been um, really wonky when it comes to uh, just reading copious amounts of stuff, and I I absolutely love statistics and data. Um, but I really was much more, um, you know, I don't know how I would describe me. I was very much into writing. Um, I, uh, in high school was really into like investigative journalism. I was the editor on the school newspaper, like uh, uh, really that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, I actually went to the university of Maryland for, uh, for journalism. They have one of the best journalism programs in the country. I, I don't know if they still do what they did. 
And, um, you know, that was really the path that I wanted to go down. So, you know, I had, um, my dad would always bring home, um, you know, the, the laptops that were too old for his guys to use anymore. And I would get a lot of the, the old laptops, um, for school and stuff like that from like a word processing standpoint. And we had like the awesome AOL dial up and, you know, and I had aim and all that stuff, but, you know, I really was not, um, what you would call like a technology um, aficionado or really that interested in, in it at a young age, because I really had not found the thing that interested me in technology. And I, I know this sounds weird, but, you know, data center, and I know we'll, we'll probably get this data center for me really was the thing that it was kind of like a fish to water. Like when I got into that world, um, my, view of technology and and what I liked about technology really changed dramatically. So, you know, so growing up, I used technology, but I was probably a pretty normal kid in terms of like, I like to play a ton of video games and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I really didn't find my my stride until I, I was actually out of college. So, um, so yeah, so I, I know that's a little bit different than most people in this space, but that's that's kind of the truth for me. Well, you'd be surprised how many interviews that I do and people that I know who are now in our industry, even at very, very high levels, you know, owners and presidents and whatnot, who were like music majors back in, back in college. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they, they took completely different paths, which I think is good for listeners to, to hear, because if you're young and you're looking to figure out how you can get started in the space, I mean, learning the language of the industry is absolutely critical, but it doesn't matter what your background is. All you have to do is learn how to learn and then leverage that to figure out how you can get into this industry and start small and, and grow big. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And I, it's interesting that you mentioned the music thing. So like I, I, you know, play guitar and when I was growing up, I played a trombone and a tuba, which yes for anybody listening if you're looking for an instrument that um the uh that you think will attract other people tuba is not the way to go um but uh you know having said that i think that there's a big misconception about technology that it is really just zeros and ones and i can see how people who are like writers or artists in some way are attracted to technology because there's actually so much creativity even in the space like what we're talking about at the data center or the cloud level, um, and being able to use both, you know, your artistic and analytical part of your mind, that, that, that actually makes perfect sense to me. And I think it's a really good point that you know, technology shouldn't be seen as a career field that's reserved for somebody who's like Bill Gates or, uh, you know, a Waz or something like that, that it's really a field that anybody who has even a, a you know, tangential interest in should should get involved with. So I, I think that's a, a great point, Sean, actually. So I definitely want to get into the meat and potatoes here of the industry and how it's evolving and, and why you chose to uh, start Data Canopy with your business partner. But there's a journey here and there's a path and I can, I can just see by the different roles that you've had as I'm looking through your LinkedIn profile and your, your background. Uh, how you got to where you are today. But for those who aren't there and aren't watching, you know, let's start with XO, right? You started a job working at XO, slinging circuits, um, and the yep. evolution from there. If you could kind of walk those listening through how you got to where you're at today. And I think what's specifically interesting for the listeners and for me to hear is that evolutionary mindset of what you saw in the marketplace and why you chose to go to the businesses that you did and then eventually make the leap to start your own. Oh, that's 
Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And, um, you know, I, uh, you, you nailed it. So I, I really see XO as kind of my, um, my birth into, uh, into IT and technology. Um, I had had a couple of jobs previous to that at some smaller startup, uh, ISP resellers, but, you know, that was really just some smile and dial stuff. And XO was where I got really exposed to, um, where my career would be going. And, um, you know, for me, XO was the first time I'd had really professional training in and around uh, specific technology set. In this case, uh, you know, it was T1s and, and POTS lines. It was a lot on the voice side, uh, PRIs. Um, but I was working with just some really smart people that, you know, one of the people like to talk really badly about these big, for lack of a better term, like container store types of providers, but the reality is that they do attract a lot of really good talent. And a lot of the, the people that work there were really, really smart, especially on the, on the engineering side. And so it really exposed me in a way that I hadn't been before to, um, to technology and learning more about how data centers, in this case, it was carrier data centers, you know, big lucent switches and things like that, um, but how they were really um, the hub of where things were happening. And so I had sold um, some service to a company called Lore uh, Systems. And at Lore, Lore had, was really a traditional managed service provider. So we had a model where we would put engineers on site, we had a data center practice, and then we were selling phone systems and circuits and things like that. And um, Lore was where I really got exposed around 2005, 2004, 2005 was really where I got exposed to the data center. And I was working right outside DC. So the data centers that I was working in were, you know, MSCI was out there. We were one of the first tenants. The company that I was working with was one of the first tenants in DC2, uh, which for anybody in the industry, you know, Equinex DC2 is the peering point on the East Coast, right, for, for data. So, you know, my neighbors were like AT&T, MCI, uh, Verizon. And we were just, it was so cool, right? I used to describe it as, going into the matrix because it was this really cool building and, you know, these screens that would come down and, um, you know, 80% of the internet in the country was going through this facility. And so I really, you know, talking about my evolution, I really fell in love with data center at that point. And um, for me, it combined some really cool elements. You know, one data center in many ways is not the the sexiest part of technology. I think people really, when they think of tech, they think of their phone, they think of apps, they think of, uh, you know, smart cars, and those things are really, really cool. But none of that stuff really works without um, data center, cloud, infrastructure, connectivity. And that stuff to me was really cool because the interop and the interplay between those fundamentals um, was something that really just for some reason struck a chord with me. And I, I found at Lore, uh, for lack of a better term, a home in terms of that of that space. And, um, you know, in uh, 2008, that company was purchased. I stayed on uh, a little longer as the EVP there to help through the transition. And then in 09-10, um, you know, started to take a look at what I wanted to do next. And I had um, struck up a really good relationship with a friend of mine, Mike Spinoza, another fantastic uh, CEO and entrepreneur, uh, owns a company called Unleash Technologies. And <clears throat> Mike wanted to bring a hosting practice 
to his uh, web application development firm. And so uh, the CTO from Lore Systems, Andrew Iwamoto, uh, who's actually the other uh, co-founder here, and myself went to, um, uh, went to uh, Unleashed, um, and we started the hosting practice there. And um, we really wanted to bring a different level of quality and service to, to web hosting. That was our goal. And we'd been playing a lot with cloud services, you know, working a lot with VMware. Uh, at the time, we were doing some stuff with Citrix and had done some stuff with Zen, uh, things of that nature. But, you know, we were really into the colo piece and the cloud hosting piece. And so we developed a really awesome, you know, unique platform at UT uh, for web developers and for application developers, all centered around hosting. And that, again, additionally exposed me to, um, to more in terms of how people are leveraging uh, data center, right, at, at every level. And when I say data center, I, I really truly mean that from, you know, from the ground, so you're just straight up co-location all the way through the delivery of the app, right? And so I think people think of it as just a physical place, but I see data center as a concept. And because I think of it that way, I've, I've boiled some of these other elements into, into the soup that in my mind makes up data center. And so in 2016, um, you know, it was really time in my mind, I had done what I had set out to do with Mike. Um, we had built a practice that to this day uh, is still flourishing there. Um, and, you know, it was really, it was really time for, for me to do something else. So, um, you know, I, I just had always wanted to build a data center company that in my mind filled the niche and the need of what the data center world could be. And, and, and what I mean by that is traditional data center providers, <clears throat> excuse me, traditional data center providers, um, are facilities and people go in and they want to plug their colo in. And then you've got cloud providers over here that do this, that, and, you know, you're going to put some apps in here maybe, and you're going to get whatever. But to me, it was always very disparate. It was expensive. It was hard to navigate and it created this unnecessary velvet rope. And I wanted to do something disruptive in the space that would allow companies of any size or individuals of any size, whether they be, you know, a solopreneur or as some of our clients are Fortune 500 companies to gain access in a meaningful way to technology that would help them accomplish their mission, whether that's to make money, be more competitive, service people, immaterial to me. I saw the technology around the data center as a way to really um, enable those individuals who want to leverage data center that way to do that. And so that was, for me, really the impetus of, of Data Canopy was I had been through several startups. I'd been a partner. I'd, I'd been through a couple of successful exits with some really smart CEOs. And, and the one thing that I really wanted to do for myself and what I just really felt like I could do was to take that leap and, and you know, put my money where my mouth is and say, okay, like I complain about this stuff all the time. This is an industry that needs a shakeup. It needs to be rattled. It needs some disruption. And, and, and let's go and do that. Let's, let's take away the velvet rope here. Let's move the curtain to the side. And let's let people gain access to this amazing technology that's out there for everybody. So back in 2010 or so, in 2009-ish, when you started getting into uh, these technologies, was co-location 
and managed services the core offering, business offering that you were bringing to the market or did it evolve yeah. into that? Yeah, no, it was 2009, 2010 was definitely, we were still doing a ton of colo cloud. Cloud had not proliferated the way that it has now. That was, we were really on the consulting side and really pushing um, you know, King Power and Pike for sure. And that was, was that was the was corner. That going zone. into your own facility, or is that through you know reselling other? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we we um are are actually uh, well, I guess we are reselling, but the way that we do it. So to so to answer your question directly, uh, Data Canopy today doesn't own any of our own facilities. We are not a facility owner. So um, we go out into the marketplace and we take. Um, large amounts of power and space with providers like NTT slash Raging Wire, Cyrus, Zeo, um, Hurricane Electric, Fia 21, et cetera, et cetera. And we take big practice space and then we outfit that space with our own infrastructure. Um, and then we're reselling that or subletting that space back out to clients. So, um, so I never wanted to be the building owner. Um, I think there's companies that do a fantastic job with that. There's a huge amount of cost. Uh, associated with that, and they they have a model that works. What I wanted to do was take that product that had been built, package it in a way that made it more accessible, and then work with clients to gain access to those spaces. So let's let's dig in on that comment right there about making it more accessible. Mm-hmm. What does that? And I'm not disagreeing with you, and that's part of the reason why I started the whole training arm of of the business years ago is because I realized just how inaccessible all this stuff was even to the employees that work for these companies, they didn't yeah. understand their own products and services. Um, so, so, so what does that mean to you? How, how, what does it mean to you by they were not accessible and how did you go about making them accessible to the customer? Yeah. Great, great question. So um, to me, you know, the way that data centers do things um, al- almost across the board is that they, they like to make it seem like there's just some, incredible magic that goes into these facilities, the actual physical components of it. And what I mean by that is that at its base level, the way that I describe data centers is as technology real estate. Everybody understands um, if you're going to go rent an office or buy a house or rent an apartment, they understand square footage, they understand the cost per square foot, uh, almost everybody. Uh, You know, there's a very base way to understand those things. What data centers have done to complicate that process and to make it appear as if it's more complex because complexity means higher prices, more difficulty, uh, more impression that you're getting something that you couldn't otherwise get is to create this, this whole world around the technology with, you know, insane certifications and, uh, you know, all of these other tertiary things that they bring to the game that, you know, create what I would basically call almost a fake value. And there are some things that are real value, and I'll talk about those in a second. But where I saw the real breakdown was, you know, when you walk into a data center, because it's so imposing, you've never been into one, where if you're not familiar with how data centers work, it's really, really easy to be overwhelmed by that. And it's really, really easy for somebody to convince you that that is worth a price that it's not worth, or to not ask the right questions to get the right value out of something, whether that's contract length, whether that's price per kilowatt, whether that's bandwidth cost, whatever whatever it is, you know, people kind of get awestruck and they just want to collect a quote and this stuff looks great and I know my CFO will sign off on it, so I want to do that. So to answer the second part of your question, 
I wanted to take that inability to get good questions answered, and I wanted to turn it on its head. I wanted to make it you know, virtually where even if you've never seen a data center before, you were a non-technology person, you could come in and you could understand what we were doing. And so to simplify things like making it very clear to understand how much bandwidth your organization needs by, by explaining to you how bandwidth works. Right, instead of these insane computations on kilo, you know, uh, uh, megabit per second, ninety-fifth uh, percentile, and all the rest of it that are just designed to confuse people and get them to buy more, simplify that, make it easy, help people gain access to that from a colo standpoint. Explaining how square square footage works in a data center, but taking it a step further and explaining square footage in terms of the per kilowatt, right? So. You know, you're not really buying square footage, you're buying power. So explain to them how you buy power and how we rate their machines and those kinds of things. You know, it was this, to me, it was stuff that I understood because I was in the industry. And to me, it was very simple. But what I realized when I started talking to people at almost every organization was that if they hadn't spent any time in a data center, not only did they not understand it, they were intimidated by it, and it was causing paralysis by analysis. So, you know, my intention with everything that we've done from a standpoint of marketing, conversations, webinars, education, the stuff that you do, Sean, that we've talked about um, very similarly, is to, is to help people understand what they're buying and why they're buying it. And once they get it, you can almost see the light bulb go off over people's head. They're like, oh, yeah, I get that now. That makes sense. Here's what we need. And what we typically find is that people are happier. They're signing contracts that are in line with what their needs are. They're growing in that space. They're applying those dollars back to other parts of their business. So, you know, they're, they're, they're not just taking it from a standpoint of, you know, putting their space in my data center or in somebody else's data center. They're then looking at other ways that they can now leverage that space more effectively in the future and, and use it towards meeting the goals of their business or whatever their mission is. So you spoke about how to own and operate a data center is very costly, which is most definitely the case. Uh, despite the fact that those costs have come down, it still is, or over the years they've come down, it still is very costly to do that. But you've intentionally decided that you don't want to build and operate and manage your own data center. You know, I know you've you could have access to capital if you wanted it, but why? Why have you strategically made that decision not to own and operate and manage your own facility? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and we struggled with that early on, right? Because I think everybody in the data center space, there's a certain amount of ego that says, "Man, I, I would love to have you know Barbera data centers compete with Equinix and these other guys, and I know we could do it better." But the reality is, when you really sit down and look at, in my mind, what our mission was, owning the facility did two things. One put us in direct competition with competitors and players that, you know, have been doing it for a long time and to your, to, to your point had access to capital that would have made entry into that barrier to entry in that space really, really high. Um, that wasn't the ultimate deciding fact. When I sat down and I looked at where we wanted to be in, you know, five, 10 years, and I really mapped that out, I truly saw Data Canopy as a nationwide integrator for data centers. And that meant being able to take product from other companies and bring it into our suite and then layer in the products and services that we saw in the cloud side and, and on the app side and so on and so forth and layer it into that. The other reality for this is that data centers have a very, very, very complex model 
that is based on occupancy. And once I really recognize that, the costs for running a data center are fairly high, right? You have to manage the mechanical, electrical, you have to manage uh, all the individuals, you have to manage the contractors on the outside. That absorbs outside of the actual cost of power about 90% of the cost of the data center. And it takes away from the ability to actually work with the end users. Part of where data centers really fall down is that they don't have the right type of personnel or support needed to really work with the end users. And if we were going to be a true infrastructure as a service provider, I wanted to move the dollars that we would have been investing into infrastructure and put that into people and process. Because in my mind, that was where our real value was. And so when I took that series of factors and put them together and said, you know, do I really want to be the guy that is building these, you know, massive 400,000 square foot spaces and going through all the certification? Or do I want to be the guy that takes that, builds on it and does something better with it? The answer was actually pretty self-evident to me. And I, I, I pushed very hard down the second path. And, you know, to this day, I regret none of it. I mean, I, I, I am still not interested in owning my own space or building it. It's, it's, it's just something that for me is for people in my space. Uh, more, uh, it would be more of an ego project than anything else at this point. The, um, it is a conversation that I know you and I have already had and spent hours talking about and probably still will for years to come. Um, that the specifically around that topic, what I have seen happening, and I know you kind of saw this happening as well in the market is many of the data center owner operates, operators, both public and private who are now focused on going after the massive hyperscale deals, the Google, the Amazon, the Facebook, the IBM, those those massive accounts that are taking down megawatts every quarter, every month, uh, all over the world. Everyone's clamoring after that business right now and fighting for that business. And the big companies that have a lot of power in space and are, are making these significant bets and investments they're diverting resources away from taking care of the traditional co-location side of their house, meaning the non-hyperscale client base. And the rationale for them is, well, that's where the market's headed. You know, all this infrastructure is moving into the cloud. So that's where we need to divert our resources. But I'd love to have a conversation with you about how that's affecting the other 99.9999999% of customers that are not all in in these public cloud environments that still have infrastructure that needs managed. And whether that's an individual company a, or an MSP of sorts that's managing mm-hmm. infrastructure, there's, there's a belief, I think, by a lot of the finance and real estate people in our industry that everybody is eventually just going to push into a public cloud environment. Uh, but I'm sure you will attest that's simply not the reality. That's not the case. That's not what hap- what's happening on the streets. Uh, there are certain workloads and applications that make sense to be in those environments, but there's also a lot of workloads that don't make sense to be in those environments. Um, so walk me through that dynamic, you know, and where you see the opportunity uh, for your business with that, you know, with that being the case. Yeah, no, and I, 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 everything you said sounds right. I, I could not agree more. Um, I actually have seen uh, an almost reverse trend and, and, you know, when you're starting these businesses, as you know, Sean, you're kind of putting your money on a marker on the roulette table, and you're pretty sure it's going to hit that number, right? But um, in this case, the bet that we made was that um, while we while we see public cloud as um, definitely a part of cloud in the future, 
I, I actually think that public cloud will be a significant, but not the most significant part of it. And we're seeing a ton of things like uh, a term you're hearing all the time now is repatriation. Is early adapters that went into large public cloud are coming back out for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about, right? Which is their applications are not running as efficiently. They have less access or insight to um, uh, the actual resources that they're using. Um, the resources that they're using are costing a lot more than uh, than than they should be. I mean, anybody who's using a public cloud today. Um, has the, had the experience of uh, of trying to calculate their egress fees. And if you've never been in one, that is a really tough task. And so to, to answer your question, where we see the industry going, and I really love the term uh, multi-cloud, um, is that individual companies um, and or uh, government, any of these types of, of organizations that are leveraging data on a day-to-day basis in a meaningful way, which is just about everybody, is going to have a true multi-cloud environment. And what I mean by that is that they're going to have potentially physical colo. They're going to have a private cloud infrastructure, a possibly VPS or shared private cloud infrastructure where they're leveraging uh, shared resources like storage, but they have their own private uh, servers that they are managing or that they have a firm that's managing. And then they're doing some stuff up in the public cloud, maybe archival storage or dev stuff or things where they want to do it by the drink. And where I think the industry is going is that people are going to actually have the capacity for the first time in this industry to actually truly customize and perfect fit their solution to them, where they can pick the vendors that they want, the locations that they want, the resources that they want, and when they want them. And that's, that's where I think we're in the second inning of a nine-inning game, where that space is, is, you know, was early defined by, I always talk about, let me take a step back. I always talk about Amazon and Azure as um, the two best things and in some ways the worst things that have ever happened to cloud. It was the best from the sense that it really got people understanding what cloud was and that cloud was an incredibly valuable asset um, in technology and that it could allow you to scale and grow at a way that physical, pure just physical hardware could not. The one bad thing that it did was that it also um, very much made people used to a very specific way that they should be doing cloud. What we're starting to see now is that is that as public cloud matures, is that the reality is that there is an enormous amount of market space for companies like Data Canopy that are focusing the energies on the business problems of these organizations and helping to tailor their technology suites and their technology transformation to a solution that really meets all of those needs and is much, much more cost effective. So, um, you know, the first part of your question was, you know, how are the, the companies abandoning the traditional colo space? And you nailed it. I mean, this is a cash grab right now. Everybody wants the next data center for one of these massive hyperscalers, and they're just building millions of square feet of space, but they're doing that and sacrificing the middle and small enterprise market because they're not focusing any energy on what that market needs. And that represents 86% of companies in America, right? So, you know, you're abandoning a massive amount of the market. And that's where I think companies like Data Canopy um, and other IaaS companies that are coming in with a real solution that addresses business problems, not just real estate problems, will will really succeed. And and you know we're seeing that today. Um, I will tell you that over the last few years, our percentage of cloud as a percentage of our total revenue 
has shifted to more than 50%. And of those deals, very few of them um, are purely in the, uh, in the hyperscaler space. Almost all of our clients today, sub maybe one or two, um, have some sort of a multi-cloud environment where they're integrating with um, our, our private cloud infrastructure, leveraging some colo, and then leveraging a tool like Canopy Connect and Megaport to get to our a hyperscaler. And that's where this industry is going. It's going to be highly customized, um, highly competitive in terms of pricing and, and how companies are building things and, you know, really leveraging technology the way that it's supposed to be used. Yup. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I agree. Um, so the, the future of Data Canopy is to continue to find uh, tranches of space and power inside production data centers, you know, in production grade data centers, which is to be clear, different than, you know, your typical older COs, uh, central offices and switching stations from the carriers uh, and yep. or facilities that were built, you know, a decade ago and have super low PUE and are just expensive to operate and run relative to some of the newer facilities uh, to grow that presence globally so that as customers have needs, wherever they have those needs around the world, you can, you can help them deploy. Um, but let's talk, let's talk about the specific managed services that you're offering and what that actually amounts to and then what, you know, what specific capabilities you're delivering to customers that the colocation provider themselves can't deliver or yeah, not I, being, or not delivered. It, it, it's, uh, that's, that's actually really where the rubber meets the road, right? So, um, so for, for data canopy where, where we saw the opportunity was, by helping to really define what hybrid and multi-cloud means. And when we talk about managed services, we really mean cloud services, right? I mean, we are at our core uh, an infrastructure provider as through cloud. And, um, and, and the colo piece, I think that's kind of self-explanatory, right? If you're a client that's not a hyperscaler and you're trying to have a relationship with somebody that is going to do more than, you know, float a quote, that's what we do, right? But the product itself is very similar than, than going to one of the, the larger facilities in terms of, of its ping power pipe. Where our managed services really kick in for us is, is in that next suite of services. And, you know, so for us, we built our, our cloud infrastructure, um, you know, on industry kind of leading technology. So we're a VMware shop, we're leveraging Cisco, Dell, Nimble, you know, all of those names that you're used to hearing um you know i'm not i'm not an engineer so i didn't develop the next great hypervisor um but uh what we want to do is deliver those as a managed service to our end users so you know we have clients that are coming in off the street that they've got co-location and part of what they want to do is move some of their infrastructure into a private cloud because they've got performance issues on existing hardware or they need scalability or they need redundancy or any number of reasons why they're looking to to move that. So the you know the very first piece for us is that is that private cloud layer. That's that's what we're delivering to our clients where they can come in and whether it's you know Red Hat or Linux, Ubuntu or just the good old Windows 2016, right? You know, we can we can provide that service. And then the next layer above that as we discussed is our Canopy Connect product which integrates up to um, all of our hyperscalers and, and, you know, that's a product that we actually built with Megaport. Um, it's at all of our data centers and that's where you can then take that next step and say, you know, I want some access to Amazon, Alibaba, Google, 
uh, Azure, whatever the case might be, and you're going to ride that uh, Canopy Connect circuit up into that. So again, we're we're keeping that within the four walls of the data center, and then the third layer for us is really our disaster recovery. So because of the the footprint that we have and the connectivity we have between all of our data centers, one of the fastest growing parts of our business and, and something I think we could have a totally different conversation around is, is people just don't really understand disaster recovery, how that works, and how to make it cost-effective and efficient. And so one of the areas where we've seen our service suite really be adopted is in the DR space, where companies are now you know, leveraging us to have true DR for the first time in their life. You know, DR historically has been a guy in an Iron Mountain truck shows up at your office, flips the tape out, puts a new tape in, takes that tape to some facility offsite, and, you know, God willing, you've got the hardware to restore that in the event of an outage. Um, or you're paying an arm and a leg to do it. DRAS is totally different now, and, and that's where we really... Um, where we really want to deliver value and, and our service suite is, is at that disaster recovery level where we're coming in and we're helping architect that. We're helping with your recovery point and recovery time objectives. And we're helping to, to keep businesses healthy up and running across vast geographical areas or reduce latency. Uh, so that's, that's the next one. We have security that we integrate in that does both internal and external monitoring uh, with a product called Secular that is used very heavily by uh, federal government and state and local for things like E911 and other criti mission critical facilities. Uh, that product allows us to help clients who uh, have heard about this thing called cyber but have no idea on how to implement it um, to to deliver value to their end users. And then lastly, um, we have our application. So our Microsoft partner and IBM partner, so we can deliver things like Red Hat. Uh, we deliver the full Microsoft suite of services. Um, you know, if you're looking for what we call SPLA licensing or service provider licensing, so if you need to um, have redundancy or just apply new licenses to servers or whatever the case might be, um, that's what we do. So all of our services are centered in and around the data center. And, you know, as I've kind of talked about, each one of those layers touches a specific part of somebody's technology transformation or plan. And what we like to do is come in, uh, I hate to use the term, but I'll use it a little bit holistically. We want to understand the business, and then we want to talk through where and how we can apply these different layers. Some people need all of them. Some people need one or two. But I think where we want to apply those managed services is, again, this general concept of data center. If you're looking out at building your data center strategy, this is the pyramid of services that needs to be in that at some point in the future. And, and that's where we built our managed services. So from a DR standpoint, let's let's dig in just a little bit there. Uh, obviously, it, I've had different conversations on the podcast about DR and how it's, you know, backup is not DR. Uh, and mm -hmm. what we're looking at is business continuity for a company. What is, what is it really going to cost their business to be down? And I actually just had this conversation on a project that we're working now with a partner uh, and a client that has a bunch of different medical practices, right? So having a conversation with the client around, okay, so if your medical practice is down, how do you equate what that business loss actually is? Uh, yep. And it's more than simply um, the, the loss of client revenue coming in the door who are not going to be able to be served because your doctors can't service them because their applications aren't working that allow them to service them. It's also having workers who are being paid because they're on payroll or 
whatever it might be, contractors that you're paying regardless, who can't get anything accomplished that day. So there's the business loss of both the payroll of those employees and the lost income. And it's the combination of the two. And as you look at, you know, whatever your uh, your expected outage timelines are, right? So if the average business has two days or three days a year worth of downtime, then you have you can very you can calculate that loss uh, if you're looking at those figures. Um, and if you move to a provider that in theory is going to give you, you know, ninety nine, you know, five nines or four nines worth of uptime. And they have a track record of actually delivering that to the customers. You can then calculate what those savings would be moving from an environment from one you know, on-premise uh, uh, environment to uh, a hosted solutions environment. But from your perspective, as you're talking through DR with a customer, how deep in the weeds do you go in that process with that customer? And I'm just going to give another some more context here. What I have found is when you start having the DR conversation with customers, you have different stakeholders in the company that have different opinions as to what RPOs and RTOs should be for different applications based on what's important to them. Uh, And it becomes a large uh, sociological uh, therapy session, sitting down with those different stakeholders, trying to get them to speak with one another and really understand what each division is getting accomplished and how they're getting accomplished before you can get to a definitive conclusion around what a appropriate RPO RTO is that you can move forward with. What, how deep in the weeds are you going with customers? Uh, are you just handholding them through parts of that conversation and then letting them do the rest of the work? Are you charging professional service fees up front to have that conversation with them up front? Because it can drag on and it is, is not an easy process to have with, with customers. Yeah, that's, well, that's actually a, that's a great question. Um, so I think you nailed a couple things right on on the head. Now, maybe give a little bit of context. So I, I use two terms when I talk about disaster recovery. The first one is that um, disaster recovery is your tolerance for pain and your willingness to make it go away. And I'll, I'll delve a little deeper into that in a second. And the second one is disaster recovery is almost always an RGE or resume generating event for the person that didn't plan properly. So we kind of start from there. That in my mind, DR is actually so critical and it's done so improperly that going back to what I said in the last question, I, I think that it's actually the part of our business that will continue to grow the fastest because you're not really having the discussion anymore about your cloud colo strategy without talking about DR. Right, because yeah, you're putting it in a colo, but hardware still fails, and how are we going to restore? To answer the second part of your question about how deep we dive, um, it's dependent, but typically those conversations go pretty deep. And what we really try to do early on is get to a point pretty quickly where we're establishing what critical means and how we define critical. Right. Because you you bring up a great point. Right. You know, everybody thinks everything is critical. And then you start talking about the price to actually see what critical means to you. And that's what I mean by it's your tolerance for pain and your willingness to make it go away. We could all build environments today from a disaster recovery standpoint that are 100 percent HA, 100 percent redundant. And you pay for the privilege. Right. Where you've got. You know, databases syncing to each other, you're paying for big, massive pipes, 
you know, in the event that something fails over, it's the time it takes for your IPs to re-aggregate and you're, boom, you're up and running on, on the other side. That's not cheap. And for any organization that's using any reasonable amount of data, you're also using a ton of data, which means you have a lot of licensing costs, a lot of user costs, so, so on and so forth. So what we really try to do is, is immediately define, you know, what do we mean by critical? What is critical infrastructure? And, you know, my most basic definition for that is, is it something that affects, using your example, if you're a healthcare provider, is it something that affects your employee's ability to meet the mission or to do the job, right? Like, like that's number one. Like, at your point, application developers think that what they're doing is the most critical but if they're doing something behind the scene and it's okay for them to be down for four hours, um, not preferred, but okay, versus a doctor who's sitting there in an office with a human being, that's how we have to get to those things. And it's not for me to define that. It's for me to ask the question. And then typically what we find is that they're leveraging um, a consultant. So, you know, obviously people like yourself, Sean, that are, that are experts in that, where they can help define a specific industry's needs, or we're providing them examples of other similar industry types where we work. But we're getting very deep with that because DR really comes down to, you know, how quickly can you actually restore a true operating environment? And operating means that your individuals are able to do the job that they set out to do. You know, people are always like, well, well, you know, we want to have everything up and running within an hour. Uh, you know, my next question is even your archival storage, right? Like that's something you need. No, no, no. Well, we don't need that. Well, what about your payroll system? Yes, we need that. What about this? What about that? And what we find is that by asking a series of questions in a reasonable amount of time, we can get to a pretty narrow scope. That narrow scope, though, then is is really critical, right? Like, are we, do these need to be back up in 15 minutes? Are we doing a warm hot? Are we doing a, a production cold? You know, how are we doing those things? Um, the other big thing that I always find is that whether they know it or not, there typically is a budget that somebody has in their head somewhere. So one thing, you know, that I would advise anybody who's having that conversation is you need to find that person in the organization, whether it's a CFO or a department head or whatever the case might be, and you need to have very realistic conversations around budget out of the gates because, you know, early on, we were providing what I still to this day think are incredible solutions for end users. And we were so far outside the scope of what they had budgeted for that, that, you know, it wasn't even a real conversation, right? And to your point, maybe they weren't calculating it, but it didn't really matter because they just didn't have the budget to do it. So part of what we learned early on and why I use the, the two expressions I do is that, you have to be having very realistic discussions with partners about about what their real budget is for this. And so, um, so that, that that's really it. And then really helping people to understand um, and calculate what an RTO and RPO are. I mean, we we use those terms very in all the time, right? You use them probably every day. I do. We have these conversations with people. It's part of our industry nomenclature. Other than maybe the network guys at an organization or some of the app guys at an organization, you know, I would challenge most CEOs of most organizations or CFOs or COOs. Most of them don't really know what that is because they're not thinking in those terms. So a lot of it for us is education. Um, we don't charge for it because typically we're having, you know, conversations that um, are around a very specific set of technologies. And then we like to bring our partners in that can really help to define policy. One of the areas where I think most organizations fall down is they actually don't have real disaster recovery policies. 
You know, they just think everybody will go home and work. In their head, it's that parochial, right? Like we're just going to go back to our houses and plug into the wall and everybody's going to, everybody's going to be working. And what they don't realize is that that's literally the least of their problems is where people are working. The real problem is if your infrastructure fails, how are you getting people through the infrastructure and where is that going to live and what applications are they going to be able to leverage? And so I, I know it's kind of a non-answer answer, but the reality is, is that it's so unique and special to each organization that we have to just start at a high level asking questions that they may not have even asked themselves yet. They just know that they want to do DR and, and, and that's really where we start. So along those lines, because you've had the experience that you've had selling managed services, managed hosting, disaster recovery, it's that experience as to how to start that conversation with a customer, I think is yeah. it's difficult for a lot of new folks entering into our space to begin to learn and to actually execute on. Are there any tips that you would provide that you think are are very helpful and that have been helpful for you in having that conversation with someone uh, who may, you know, they may not have come to you originally saying, "Hey, I need DR." Because if they've already come to you with that, then you know that you know it seems to that conversation goes a hell of a lot easier than just having it starting out with a general conversation talking to a CTO or a director of IT. So, I guess. Do you have any advice for those that are listening as to how they could start that conversation? Yeah. You know, I, I always talk about the fact that you just have to have human conversations, right? And, you know, people have an impression that if you're moving into a colo or a cloud, you're using your five nines example, that everything moving forward is going to be fine, right? I mean, I, I'm assuming that's something you kind of hear too, right? Is that like, oh, we're in a colo now, so everything's fine. So I just kind of asked the question, you know, do you guys have, uh, what are you guys doing for disaster recovery? How are how are you handling your backups today? I use the term backup, and I love that you said early on backup is not DR because I actually like to talk about backups as an entree into that conversation because almost everybody at least has backups, and it's a relatable thing. Going back to something I said earlier, talking about real estate, right? Like people understand real estate because we live in a physical world. It's a nice, easy way to to get somebody understanding something. If you've never seen you know, a Bitcoin miner before explaining to people it's a lot like mining gold and then walking back through it. You know, so I like to use just, hey, what are you guys doing for backup, right? And then when they start to talk about backups, oh, that's really cool. So you've got, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, how are you restoring that in the event of a failure? And that's usually like where there's cricket, right? Because they haven't really thought that. They know they have the data, but then they're, not really sure. And I said, well, do you have extra hardware? Do you have an offsite? You know, I just start the conversation as really basic questions like, okay, do you have backup? The answer is almost always yes. And then secondarily, in the event of a failure, how are you getting those backups restored? And that question will be the question that spawns another 45 minute conversation because that's where the IT guy's like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the CFO's like, yeah, but we don't have budget. And that, to your point, Sean, that's where the conversation really gets going. But it's just asking some simple questions and using terminology that people use. If I say, if I come in and I say, so guys, you know, we've done all this other stuff and now I really need to understand your, your DRAS and what your RTOs and your RPOs are, like that's, you know, nobody's going to respond to that. So I think just asking a series of basic questions, and, and I really love, you know, when you say, I hate the fact that people talk about backup as DRAS because it's not, 
But I do think it affords the opportunity to say to people, this is clearly part of your disaster recovery strategy. You're doing backup. What are you doing with them? Right. And, and that, and that just starts a conversation. I mean, keep, keep it simple. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we're in technology, but we're working with people. I think as long as you remember that, you'll have a lot of success and just talk to people like they're people, you know, and ask the IT guy, how are you going to fix this? And they'll usually tell you, I mean, I see my experience has been that CTOs and CIOs love to tell you how they've architected things. And that will afford you a chance to do a lot of listening and then applying expertise as needed. There's a story here that I think is relevant. I had a a client back in the day when I was working for uh, QTS who was looking for co-location space. And he started going down the path of not wanting redundant power delivered to his environment. And his theory or his logic was, well, you're the data center owner operator. You've got all this sexy infrastructure, all these generators, you're 2N plus one. You know, there should never be a need for me to have a redundant circuit. It's a waste of money, right? And he, he doesn't make a bad point in that, yes, there is all this extra infrastructure uh, that's in place that is designed to make sure that the B side uh, never goes down so that you're, or that the A side never goes down and you're never going to need the B side. But the reality is errors occur not because of the infrastructure, but because of people. And if you look at what the cost would be for downtime, because he didn't want to make the nominal investment in having a additional B-side circuit delivered inside that environment, it would be ridiculous. And so yep. it's not that, yes, you have all this infrastructure in place, but people are the primary cause for failures inside data centers, not the infrastructure. Yep. Um, and so it, it's, it was, it, there's, what I see happening is a lot of sales uh, and even sales executives upon a client saying, well, that's what you have all this data center infrastructure for. So, you know, I don't need a B side. They'll simply say, okay, Mr. Client, they want to get the deal done. They don't want to press back on the client. They don't want to continue to drive what is going to be the right decision for the customer. They want to just let that conversation be and hope that the client signs the paperwork to get the deal done. Uh, yeah. versus getting back to that customer and really having that hard conversation. Well, how much is downtime really worth to your business? Okay, Mr. Customer, you are right. There is all this infrastructure. It's designed to not have, you know, have downtime. But at the end of the day in our SLA, you know, all we can do for you is give you one month's worth of, you know, recurring, uh, revenue that you're paying us in compensation for downtime. How does that equate to the actual downtime loss that you have as a business? And you start putting into those financial terms, you say, okay, so for this nominal investment more, you're saving yourselves from the reality that humans are likely going to cause an error. And this facility has never had an outage. It will hopefully never have an outage. Do you really want to look your CEO in the face and say, look, I could have made the investment to make sure that the B side was up uh, if the A side went down, but I didn't because I wanted to save money or you wanted to save money. And if you say, well, the owner doesn't want to spend the money, you can put that on the owner's uh, plate and make it their decision so that, and have it in writing from them so that it's not your ass that gets chewed out in case there is an outage for that purpose. I, I, I could not agree with you more in that instance. And, you know, an example that I always use that I think you'll appreciate here is a few years ago, um, Amazon 
had a massive problem in the Northeast, right? And um, all of the data center's power was up and running, but because Amazon had so much of the traffic going through Ashburn at that time um, and other carriers, all of the peering partners in the Northeast, it effectively equated to an outage, right? My facilities were all up, everything was running fine. Uh, but to your point, it was something somebody did at Amazon that had a cascade effect across multiple different users. My users who were in different regions converted over and switched to those. The other users were down until that stuff came up. That had nothing to do with my A or my B power, right? It was something as simple as an engineer at Amazon making a mistake. And if you're not planned for that, then you're not really planned, right? Because it's, it's, it's something as simple as a single engineer at a single location making a single mistake. And, and that I think is just a great way to highlight like why disaster recovery is so critical and, and, and honestly why people can't, um, you know, overstate how, how it can happen without you really even knowing what the cause was. I mean, it's never something as nefarious as like the power station was blown up. It's always something like a human being did something on a machine they weren't supposed to do. That's what it always is. So uh, I think that's actually a really good example of that. Okay. So the other question I want to ask you as someone who is in essence, reselling space and power from a provider. And it's, it's something that I speak to is more often than not, in the past, I have suggested that a client go direct to the data center owner operator themselves versus go through one of the resellers. That's mm-hmm. changing and has changed. And I know we've talked about this a lot due to the reality that there are so many resources being pulled away from the retail co-location side of the house inside these companies, which means there's more friction in the process of buying from those providers. Uh, whereas I can work with someone like a data canopy, make a phone call or send an email, give some requirements and get a deal going a hell of a lot faster than having to wait 48, 72 hours just to get a response and start to move a deal forward um, with with those providers that simply don't have the resources to focus on the retail co-location side of the house. Um, but how, how do you, I mean, is there something beyond that story? Uh, that helps you when you're talking to customers who's like, you know, I could work with you or I could just go direct to Cyrus One and get the deal done with Cyrus One. Why work with DataCan? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And I think there's a couple of things here. So you nailed a couple of them. I mean, and we talked about this earlier in terms of the hyperscaler piece. You know, they're, they're very focused on a market, right? And they're uh, using Cyrus One as an example. And Cyrus One will flat out tell you that their market is the Fortune 100. So if you happen to be one in one of those 100 you know, biggest companies in America, you will get a ton of attention from Cyrus One, like no doubt about it, or from any of the major providers. Um, but if you're outside of that top 100 you, and you're not buying on scale of you know, 250 kilowatts, half a megawatt, megawatt of power, you know, good luck getting the attention of somebody because their sales forces are designed to sell at that scale. Right. And so right out of the gates, just from a standpoint of the type of attention, it's it's just a function of human nature. Salespeople have to hit a quota. And if you don't meet the demand that you're going to even get them close to where that's coming from, it's not even that they don't want to. They literally can't focus on you like it, they, they have to go do something else. And it's not because they like you or don't like you or any of that stuff. It's a simple function of math. If you're not doing a deal that's big enough, they have to go and look somewhere else. So. You know, I always kind of start there is where, um, 
where is the energy being put by the organization? Because that will usually tell you where you rank for them. You know, secondarily, the smaller deals, and I'm sure, Sean, you probably have seen this as well, they're not really trying to compete on those because they don't have an infrastructure that can support smaller users. They're very used to supporting you know, the service team at one of these hyperscalers. They don't want one-off tickets that are coming in. That's, that's what organizations like Data Canopy, we've built our infrastructure and our, stru- and, and our uh, support structure around dealing with smaller users. And that includes um, you know, knock centers, that includes how we have our ticketing systems, that includes how we uh, work directly with clients and so on and so forth. You know, Even if you get a quote from Osiris One in a reasonable amount of time and you know, so on and so forth, the chances that you're then going to get supported in the way you want to in the future, very minimal as well. Um, and then to dovetail to that, if you do work through a company like a data canopy, because we are a big enough buyer, we have the levers that we can pull on the other side with a Cyrus One or with a Raging Wire and NCT or any of those types of companies because we're a big buyer for them, where your small need becomes a big need for them because it's a need for us. And that's something that, um, short of the buying power that we have, you're, you're just not going to, to have that same experience. And then lastly, you know, we're building in our pricing to make sure that you're not sacrificing the cost to work with a firm like us. In fact, in a lot of cases, we actually are a cheaper option than going direct to the facility because our pricing is based on such a wholesale scale buy that we're able to reduce the pricing on the colo side to a point where they don't really want to compete at that level anyway. So I think when you take a look at all of those pieces, what we have found is that our clients are just incredibly happy with the decision to go with us. And I say that with a lot of with a lot of pride. You know, we we don't typically lose clients. Every once in a while we'll run into somebody that says, I just buy direct and you know, go with God. That's your choice. I, I respect that. Um, but if you're really looking for value as well as price, um, and the combination of the two, then I, I think you're really looking for a provider that that is approaching the retail space a little bit differently. I'm going to feed another uh, common, um, I guess, rebuttal that people will say is, you know, if there is a major issue inside that facility, I want to make sure that I'm working directly with the people responsible for solving the problem inside that facility versus a middleman. How do you how do you address that one? Yeah, uh, you know, I go back to um, something I just said, you know, we're not a middleman from a spam. And maybe there are like, so I think there's two types of resellers, right? There's resellers who are really literally just a straight reseller where they're, they're taking somebody else's product, they're selling it more like an agent, right? They're selling it, they're getting a percentage of that. And they're, that's what they're doing. You know, we are embedded in these systems with these organizations. And, you know, my question to them is, do you think that if you call and you're somebody that has a single cabinet in a single hall somewhere in Houston or Austin, um, that you're going to be talking to the CTO? Or do you think if I call and I'm a client that now has four and a half to five megawatts of power, I'm going to be the one that's going to get the call back in the resolution? And, you know, not to not to play that card all the time, but because you're asking the question, the reality is, again, going back to what I said, you're not going to get a call back from one of these guys. You know, I, I use the same example with Amazon. Have you ever tried to call Amazon or Azure tech support? I mean, good luck, right? But if you're Netflix and you call Amazon, you are 
darn straight that they're going to pick up that call. And that's the same thing for us is that we work with these people all the time. We have relationships with them. Our ticketing systems are integrated with them. We're communicating with their sales teams, with their executive management teams, with their CTOs. We're at their planning sessions. You know, if you think that you can develop a better relationship with them than we can based on your smaller retail buys, you should do that. But the reality is that we're going to have a better relationship. And yes, when you call and you have a problem, somebody on our side is going to pick up. If Cyrus One or Raging Wire or NTT is having a major issue and you call in to their 24-7 knock, you might get a response via email four days later. Because what they're focused on is solving the issue and updating their largest clients. That's, that's just the reality of these situations. And you know, people don't always want to hear that, but that, that really is the reality. That we have the model that we built was specifically for this, was to give access to people that they wouldn't otherwise have that extends beyond just the pricing and also into the support and to the technical side. And I, I think that we've worked with enough clients who have had those issues in the past where I can say, pretty assuredly that that's the case. Yeah, and the, uh, the logic there flows for those who are on the agent side of the house as to why you would want to clear business through a master agency versus a direct contract because you being direct and the volume that you do is going to be a fraction of what the master agency is doing. So let's take CenturyLink, for example, uh, and the volume that you know Microcorp, who I work intimately with, is far greater with CenturyLink than it is than any one of our existing agents. And so we have that leverage with them and have a whole internal team within CenturyLink dedicated just to working with us at Microcorp such that if there are issues, no matter the size, even small, you know, Joe's Pizza uh, down the street, if they're having an issue, we can call in, get direct access, direct support versus Joe's Pizza calling in and having to go through four different layers of management just to get an answer, maybe in the next 48, 72 hours. Uh, so that, 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 is, that, is, that, is so, that is so correct. And that's why we're 100% channel organization, talking about our sales model. Because in addition to the, the obvious force multiplier for us, the flip side of that is, you know as many people as I do, right? And so I can call Microcorp or I can call Sean. And if we're having an issue on an account that's related to one of our agents, in addition to the value that they're getting from all the other stuff, the, the capacity that you and I communally bring to something like that is exponential, right? And they're not seeing it as, use your example, Joe's Pizza, they're seeing it as Microcorp, Open Spectrum, Data Canopy. You know, it's one massive client that has to have a problem at a location versus one small location client. And that is a big psychological difference. I mean, it's a massive difference for an organization. So let's dig into some of the more f- uh, f- fun conversation uh, that I want to have with you about where things are headed and evolving in the industry. And I'm curious, you know, what your take is. A lot of people say, "Well, data centers aren't sexy." You know, our industry isn't sexy. Uh, you know, I think data centers are sexy, even though I've toured through 400 of 400 plus of them in the last couple of years. Um, I still enjoy walking through facilities. In fact, I just went through. A decommissioned facility just down the street here, downtown Raleigh, uh, about two weeks ago. And the person that was touring me was like, Yeah, this is just an old rundown facility. You know, you probably don't. And I was like, No, I'm going in, man. I want to check this thing out. And it was interesting just walking around, just taking a look at how this thing was built, what's left over, 
why what's left over is left over uh, and understanding the context of how that facility was used in the past and how it's evolved to what, what they want to do with it in the future. That stuff just, you know, it excites me <laughs> why I'm in the industry I'm in. Um, but I'm curious, where, where do you see the industry going? Like, what are the key innovations taking place that are exciting and, and for lack of a better term, sexy? Yeah, that, gosh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I, I agree with everything you just said. I, I, you know, started out this conversation by saying that I kind of found my home in, in data center and um, have wanted to continue to live here. And I actually think that we are in, in my mind, one of the great evolutions of, of, of technology. And I think data center is at the center of that, center of that. you know, I think you had a period where um, fiber was really coming to market and that was a massive change driver for the industry. And then you had your um, voice over IP overlays on that. And then, you know, as mobile started to get more um, universally adopted, but what always gets missed in all of those conversations is yes, those technologies were what the end users were experiencing, but the data center is where all of that was terminating. And the growth of the data center, whether it was a hyperscaler, whether it was the growth of fiber and utilization of fiber, whether it's the utilization of mobile, whatever the case might be, you know, that technology, um, the macro technology centers in and around the ability to leverage data centers. And um, where I think the industry is going, as I said a little bit earlier, you know, part of where I really see things going is that it's been so um, perhaps the term is regimented in terms of how people are thinking about and gaining access to data center. But I think as the economy as a whole changes, and as we go more to a pay per drink model, and a customized model, and a one click model, I see the data center going in that, that same way. And I see the capacity of people to truly for the first time really future proof their businesses where they're coming in and they're saying, I have X today, tomorrow I need Y, on Wednesday I need Z, and so on and so forth. And being able to do that cost-effectively, quickly, and efficiently with the right partners. And that's, that's really never existed, right? I mean, you know, historically, as you take a look at these industries, they move very, very slow. And it's moving at a pace now that is, is really, in my mind, just insane. I mean, you know, the proliferation of cloud as an accepted technology has happened so incredibly quickly that even the government is now moving, by their standards, moderately fast into that space. And the reason for that is because it, it's just so incredible for creating scale and helping to accomplish missions. And then I think you layer in on top of that the idea of IoT and big data and data analytics and how we as a human race are going to use all of that in our day-to-day -day life, that all centers in and around data centers. You are not doing that from your laptop, right? Like the, the little drive on your laptop is not what's using that computing power. It is megawatts of power at data centers and translating that down to then the cloud servers and the storage and the applications that are being built in on top of that that are actually fundamentally changing the way we live our lives. And I know that that sounds very kind of highfalutin or, you know, um, almost over the top. But that's actually the reality, right? I mean, we are consuming Netflix now, like people 50 years ago consumed antenna television. We all now watch it because we have the capacity to 
watch anything that you want to on demand. That is actually a remarkable change that has happened in less than the last 10 years, all driven by data center growth. And so I think what you're really starting to see is that the data center really can't even belong on site anymore outside of very special application or SCIF or things like that. And that the demand for these resources is going to continue to grow. And there will be ebbs and flows as, you know, there's too much space built and it gets filled up and there's not enough space and so on and so forth. But as an industry, as a demand, as a need on where we're going, I, I cannot see any way that data center is not truly at the center of all of it. And that makes it incredibly sexy to me, both from a business opportunity standpoint but secondarily, just as somebody who's living in this time when all of this stuff is happening and we're, we're leveraging resources that we didn't have access to and information that we didn't have access to, it's remarkable to me. And, you know, my hope is that Data Canopy and the partners that we work with and you're, yourself included in that are all part of this next generation that is taking these traditional technologies leveraging them in a way that, you know, they've never been leveraged before and then applying them in ways where we are able to really take advantage of what that can mean for us as as a species. And I, I know, that, again, that I say that and sometimes people's eyes roll back in their head, but I actually genuinely believe that. And that for me was why I kind of fell in love with technology. You know, I think that this space is really what's going to um, define my lifetime in terms of, of, of what we're seeing and how people are using tech. It's, it truly is interesting to watch how fast things have evolved over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And almost mind-blowing, you know, we, the rate of change is occurring so quickly that it almost becomes um, uh, something we just get used to. Uh, without understanding if it continues at this pace, where are we going to be in the next five, 10 years? Right. I, you know, you've got kids, I've got a 13, 10, and six year old, and I'm constantly looking at my 13 year old and the AI. Uh, you know, we just went to this, you know, family fun park center with go karts and stuff, but they had a VR, uh, you know, device machine that was very similar to the one that's in um, uh, Ready Player One. The movie Ready Player right. One. Yeah, yeah. Where you're fully immersed and walking around and you're shooting stuff and whatnot. Um, it was super rad. And I just, I got out of that experience and uh, had another experience not too long ago with Scott McIntyre on my team down in Plano, Texas, where they had the fully immersed experience where they have like six different rooms that you're walking through as you've got the VR goggles on and you're interacting with the rooms and it was a Star Wars themed one and there's actually robots or you know things that are apparently look like robots in the room that you can touch and you walk in you know you get on a Mustafar which is the volcano planet and you can feel the heat that gets pushed you know so you get fully immersed in that experience and it was just totally awesome but I walked out of it and just thought, holy crap, in the next couple of years, this is just going to get even cooler and like even more realistic. But how is that going to shape and affect our species, you know, to your point? Um, and you know, even going to work every day and interacting with the things that we interact with, at what point do we go into work or not even have to go into work? We, just, we go to work by just going to one of the rooms that we have and flipping on some goggles. And all of a sudden, we're in a virtual environment where we see all the people that we work with or better yet, just like, you know, in the futuristic movies, you've got through telepresence, 
you know, a room set up where you can see virtually all the people that you're working with without even need to put goggles on. Yep. So no, all that I, stuff is is coming down the pipe, and it's not so much future technology; it's technology that exists today. It's just so expensive at this point that it's inaccessible to the masses. But as it becomes cheaper and cheaper to produce this stuff and push it out, I think you know our our way of life is going to change drastically here in the very near future. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I I am a huge sci fi fan too, and I think you know you read books or or even if you're watching these movies like i mean like minority report you know these guys are like they have real-time access to data that they're moving with their hands and then you know we have autonomous driving cars well you know that movie seemed like ridiculous when it came out 10 or 15 years ago whenever it came out and now almost every major manufacturer is working on an autonomous car right and so to your point as scale gets bigger those technologies are going to be cheaper and, you know, I watch my kids like you do now. They're using technologies in ways that I'm using it. And my kids are nine and six. And they're using it more efficiently than I am. I mean, you know, my daughter is so comfortable with biometrics on my phone and using her fingerprints and things like that. That, I mean, you know, that stuff was like, it was in science fiction movies when we were kids because it couldn't even be. And now it's just on your phone, right? I mean, like face recognition software and biometrics from your thumb are accepted parts of how we access our telephone now, right? Like that's, that's amazing to me, but that, that data all resides and how we're going to leverage that I think is going to really dramatically change things. And, you know, I, I don't see, I think the genie's out of the bottle, Pandora's box is open, whatever analogy you want to use. But I, I am a big believer in the fact that we are heading into what I see as the next industrial revolution equivalent, which is that technology is so dramatically changing the world that we're in, that that is a big part of a lot of the stress that we're feeling as a society as well as, you know, there really are those who are now technology natives. And going back to a question you asked really early on, you know, did your dad use a lot of tech? And like the answer was no. My kids at nine and six are already so vastly superior to where my parents were with technology that they're not even of the same species to a certain degree, right? And so there's a big chasm there. And I think part of, not to go on too up a tangent, but part of what we'll have to do as people is actually really figure out how to bridge that chasm to, you know, alleviate some of the stress that we're feeling as, as the economy changes and becomes more technologically advanced, as robotics really moves into the workplace on mass, I mean, it's already there, but as we see it continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, I mean, I just, I think that there's so much coming that we can't even imagine, you know, on this call from a standpoint of where things are going and it, it's exciting and, and also terrifying, but, you know, I, I wouldn't want to not be a part of it. I, I'm excited about those changes. And another interesting conversation is around how, you know, is technology truly making us more efficient? Uh, at what we do. And I was just listening to a, another podcast with Tim Ferriss and the uh, author GTD or Get Things Done, which is a book. And he's got a consulting firm where he works with executives and coaching them how to just get more accomplished throughout the day, which is right up Tim Ferriss's alley and right up my alley, uh, to be blunt. But the, the conclusion that many research researchers have come to is that by having, you know, email and text and WhatsApp and Twitter and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we have all these new mechanisms by which we can communicate with people. 
but it's not helping us get things accomplished faster because we're not teaching people the fundamental principles of how to actually go about prioritizing your day and going through action steps of how to get things done throughout that day. It doesn't matter what freaking tool you use. You could use, you know, I'm actually just converted back. I had a, was using OneNote for my journal uh, for a long time, uh, for probably the last two and a half years. And I've just decided I'm going to go back to using my handwritten journal because I, I, I can get through it faster. I can make notes faster. Um, and I, I enjoy, you know, for, I'm a tactical person, so I like flipping through the pages and looking at what it is that was accomplished or wasn't accomplished the day or week prior to then reset the priority for this upcoming day or upcoming week. Um, and I'm really starting to wonder how much technology is making my life easier versus more complicated and uh, more stressful. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's, it's easy to have technology just for technology's sake. And I think part of what will have to happen in the future is determining which technologies are our best and which aren't. I, I am actually with you in this cool felt like I still use handwritten notes and I always have. And I have a tablet, a laptop, you know, all this other stuff. I cannot replace my notes. In fact, when I try to do it, I'm so ineffective with it. And I stuff is actually harder for me to find versus just having a nice little notebook at my side that I, I have with me wherever I go, um, that I don't do it. But I wonder, and you know, I'm just wondering this out loud, if that you and I will be part of some of the last generations that feel that way. Because as I watch my kids, and probably the same thing for your kids, as things like Chromebooks now become more integrated into the classroom, and as they're now learning to do work that way, will will we actually see a completely different way of doing things that we won't be able to adapt? Like, are we now on the other side of the chasm and things like that, where, you know, our children and our children's children will be effectively cyborgs because they'll be so integrated into technology. So my wife's a teacher and all of her kids have Chromebooks, right? Like that's how they deliver their homework. That's how they respond to things, you know, and I know it's not everywhere yet, but at some point it will be. And that's how they'll learn. So is that simply a function of our age? Or is that because human nature requires us to have something, to use your term, tactile? I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think that those will be the interesting questions and, and how we use technology will become more and more interesting. Amen to that, man. Um, so along that thread and along that vein, what, what is something that you've come across in the recent future that's blown your mind as something truly different, unique, exciting, uh, maybe to help? reshape or reframe how you're operating in this crazy world we live in personally or professionally either or yeah um geez, that's a great question kind of unprepared uh so something really cool that i've seen well i think having recently been and this is kind of a an in the you know kind of a weird thing but having recently been car shopping a lot lately i have to i have to get a new car at some point so i've been kind of going through the machinations of looking at lots of different vehicles. I think what has kind of amazed me was um, just in five years, I mean, truly amazed me going back to the autonomous driving thing, how every vehicle now has autonomous driving included in it. And, um, you know, just how unbelievably far that technology has come, right? I mean, like the heads up displays in vehicles now, 
you were talking about the immersion experience, the fact that cars are now designed for the, all the wireless charging, everything activates when you drop your phone, even into like cheap rental vehicles. I mean, I, I just have been amazed by how far that technology has come and how much all of us will be affected by that because, I mean, what in America is, is more universal than a car, right? Maybe a TV. Um, but I mean, that stuff's been absolutely just kind of amazing to me. And, you know, I, I was looking at some like really high end fancy cars and, you know, they've got stuff, but I mean, even like lower end or mid market cars now are including all this technology that steers your car back into the road. It can detect lanes. Uh, you know, it can drive itself given the right conditions, cars park themselves. It's actually kind of amazing to me because my car is not that old. I just have to get it for work reasons. But, you know, when I bought it four years ago, that stuff wasn't even on the horizon yet. Now here we are and it's, it's almost a standard feature. And that, that's crazy because that level of automation that fast kind of gives me pause. Like, wow, what, what is coming next? You know, I, I like you travel a lot. I think the fact that, you know, these systems at hotels now, some of the nicer hotels have all of your preferences ready and that they're leveraging, you know, things that you've done at other stays at other hotels or purchased to have things waiting for you when you're in your room. I think that for me is kind of amazing because it's, it's while it makes perfect sense that they would do that, there's a value to that for the end user. It also kind of just happened overnight. Like it wasn't there was, I almost feel like there was no transition, right? Like we went from not having it to it was just everywhere. And that, that's been kind of weird. So I don't know if you've experienced anything like that, but that, th- those little things for me, I think almost shocked me more than the big things. These like everyday things that all of a sudden it's just different. Like just, it just is. And it's just kind of expected everywhere you go. Yeah. I was talking to someone the other day uh, as you're talking about vehicles uh, who has a Tesla and the Tesla basically drives them 90% of the way from their house to work. Um, And, you know, I'm, I don't think I'd ever do that. (laughs) Right. I I get it. I understand it. I mean, I kind of like driving. I enjoy the experience of driving. Um, It's something that I've become accustomed to, but, you know, to our point in conversation about our kids, right. And what they're going to become accustomed to and used to that may just become the norm for them. They don't ever right. have to, they just pump, punch in where they're going and the car will drive them there. Um, that is a possible likely future over the next five, 10 years. Um, for me, I don't think I'd ever want my car to do that as much as I can appreciate the time that it might free up. But, you know, I, I pick up, you know, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm making phone calls. You know, I don't keep myself not busy while I'm in the car. Or I'm just zoning out and trying to meditate and get a you know get some meditation done and some prayers done for the day. I have to center myself as I'm driving. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. But I I think you kind of nailed it, right? It's like that's our reality, but that reality is changing so fast that we you know like we won't be able to adjust. Like my father cannot imagine a world like he just got his first Apple Watch and like he likes it okay, right? Because to him it's just what's the value of that versus, you know, I mean, everybody wears one. So it's just like that, that reality of, of what our world is going to be. But I agree with you. I read a, some clickbait the other day um, in, you know, a down moment where it said, you know, you know, you're of uh, X generation if you still look over your shoulder to back out of a space. And it didn't even really occur to me, right? That like, 
my kids will never own a vehicle that doesn't have backup cameras and help them parallel park, where I'm sure that you and I, of course, both had to learn how to do that, especially growing up and living in big cities. That's not even something they'll, they'll know about. They will never live in a world where the only mode of transportation is a taxi cab, public transportation in your car, because now we live in a shared environment where they can literally rent individuals' cars on a day-to-day basis. Like it's, it is happening crazy fast. I mean, those changes are just happening at a pace that is insane to me. And I, you know, I love it. And I'm, I'm also probably showing my age by saying that, you know, sometimes it actually scares me a little bit because I don't know how to parent against some of that stuff either. Right. Yeah. That aren't, the, they're not the same problems that our parents faced with us. They're, they're literally brand new. It's never existed before. And that's a little bit scary, I think, for, for parents talking about, you know, our kids. Amen. Hallelujah. Um, so as you're, as we're talking about this, I can, I mean, if I could show up to a place and press a button on my car keys and have the car just go park itself somewhere. So I didn't have to deal with it. I would totally do that. I would 100% do that. Um, so that is, if if anybody listens to this, that works for any car manufacturer, please make that a feature for your 2020s that your cars will park themselves. Yeah. I bet that, I mean, I bet they can do that already, right? They can do the parallel park thing, but they can't just go find a spot and go park there. But that no, no, no. I mean, I, to- yeah, I, I get what you're saying. That 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 would be the amazing thing. Like, I just want to hop out where I'm going and then have right. you valet my car for me. Like the valet feature. That's what you're talking about. We need a valet yep. feature. Yep. Yeah. Um, Agree. All right. I do want to briefly touch on one thing. You do a lot of civic engagement in and around the community uh, that you work in and around. And uh, as an entrepreneur, I know you're constantly also helping to mentor other entrepreneurs as I am. That's you know one of my passions, one of the things that we share. Can you just briefly speak to uh, the work that you're doing in and around that? And I know it's not a brief conversation, but <laughs> as briefly as you can, uh, I would love for our listeners just to hear a little bit about that, uh, the work that you're doing in and around that area. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm involved in a couple of um, different things. Um, I, first of all, and I'll, I'll be as brief as I can, cause I could talk about this for a long time. Uh, entrepreneurship for me is, um, actually just a passion. I applaud and respect anybody who's had success or failure as an entrepreneur, because I really believe, um, especially in a country like ours, that if you're willing to sign your house on the dotted line to start your dream, that there's really nothing bigger than that. And if you're somebody who follows an entrepreneur and finds your house under that, it's it's as big, if not bigger. So I always kind of start there. That to me, it's it's just such a cool thing, entrepreneurship. And the fact that that we have the ability to do that in this country is amazing. Um, I uh, am passionate about it. Um, I believe that entrepreneurship helps our communities in many, many ways, in addition to obviously bringing uh, people jobs and um, uh, security. I think that if you take a look at a lot of the statistics, entrepreneurs tend to be more involved in their communities. Entrepreneurs tend to do a lot in terms of uh, civics, in terms of give back, both cash and time. Um, for me, I volunteer um, a lot of my time with uh, young entrepreneurs, people who are getting started in the business for the first time. Um, I'm involved with a, a center here in Maryland called the Maryland Center for Entrepreneurship. Um, where in addition to advising uh, some of the younger business owners on something as basic as like HR or uh, or accounting, um, also helping them 
discover ways to better utilize technology, which so much of this conversation has, has centered on. Um, I, I've spoken um, uh, at like Inc. 5000 events um, with uh, specifically military veterans who are coming into the workforce for the first time that are looking to start businesses and working with veterans that have really great ideas on how to improve something and helping veterans find ways to um, get into the community that they're in and to start businesses. Um, veterans have an amazing amount of talent and uh, are just so dedicated and they get out of the military and they've got all of these great ideas and they don't know how to play put practical application to these ideas. And so, you know, I would stress for anybody that, um, you know, is an entrepreneur or has the means to advise um, to give their time to go into communities like entrepreneurship centers or veterans communities or minority communities or any community and spend some time with those individuals and to just give them truly, freely your time to talk to them about ways to, um, to improve uh, their businesses. And, you know, what I, what I find gratifying about that is being a technologist, I don't always get to see. So I work with a lot of hospitals. You work with a lot of people like I do, Sean. You don't always get to see the fruits of those labors, right? Like, yes, we're doing hosting for a hospital, but I'm not there when the doctor is leveraging that data to help a, a patient. Um, so technology can be very arm's length. I think that for me, speaking to and working with entrepreneurs helps me to reconnect to people. And it feels great for me in terms of, of helping somebody in a very direct way in improving their lives. And, and that's really cool for me. So, um, so I get a lot more out of it. And it sounds cheesy, but it's true. I get a lot more out of it than I'm giving. And, you know, I, I love to do it. So, and I know you do too. We've, we've talked about that. I know you're very involved with that in your community as well. So any quick advice for, for, I guess, two groups, let's start with those who are working in our industry today. Um, you know, what, what is, uh, let's go with those who are, um, thinking about entering the data center marketplace uh, who have not already joined, what, what advice would you give them on how to get started? Uh, stay out of it. The space is full. Data Canopy is doing a great job. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, we, um, I, I would let them know that, um, you know, gosh, that's a great question. So I think first I would tell uh, people trying to get into the data center space that this is a rapidly evolving market space. And what you think you know, you're probably already outdated and you spend a lot of time actually studying and paying attention to the industry. Uh, I, like you, listen to a ton of podcasts. I read a ton of literature, uh, both industry rags as well as, you know, other stuff that's just out there that's on data center and also about emerging technology, which we'll, we'll, we'll relay back. I think a lot of people want to get into it because they know a little bit about cloud or they know a little bit about colo and they... They just want to get in there and make a few quick bucks. And, and those people get weeded out fast. This is an expensive industry to be in. And you have to bring a value to your, to your partners and your end users. So to bring value, you have to be educated. And to be educated, you have to spend the time to do that. So you know, that would be the first thing that I say to people is really, really know your industry. And then your, your second question was just people in general getting into business? Or what, what was the second part? I apologize. Yeah, so it would be for uh, an entrepreneur, some someone new, a new entrepreneur. What what advice would so, you give them? So I will give them the advice that I got when I was um, my very first job or a second job, I guess, but in in this industry, 
um, I had this really weird experience where my um, high school rec soccer coach, um, when I first moved here, um, wonderful woman named Sue Madden, who I, I still talk to, but I had lost touch with her through college. She happened to have an office across the hallway from me. And I didn't even realize, because you don't know when you're a kid what people do, but that she was a business owner. And um, I will give everybody the same advice that I took, which is this is an incredibly hard thing to do. It's one of the hardest things to do. Um, it's a roller coaster. Um, but you have to grab for the brass ring. And you have to do it with no fear. And that's really, really hard to do. But you have to be willing to put 100% of yourself into it and to go for it. And if you can't do that, if you're not prepared to make that leap, don't do it because you won't find success. Because entrepreneurship is truly about throwing caution to the wind, believing in yourself and the people around you that you choose to associate with, and then going for it. And you know, I remember that conversation. I was very young and I was really struggling in my first job. And you know, her saying that to me and seeing her success. And um, I still credit her because I don't know that I would have come down this path if I hadn't had that type of mentor. She spent a lot of time with me talking about other things, but I tell everybody, you have to grab the brass ring. Like you have to be willing to go for it. And you may fail, but that's okay. Like the, you have a better chance of getting there if you're willing to do it. If you're scared, if you're not prepared to do it, if you don't like risk at all, this is not the game for you. And if you're okay with that, then that's the biggest step that you can take is to just be ready for be ready for that because it will be really hard and i had another friend of mine who's had a couple of really successful exits that said just remember it'll cost you three times as much and take five times as long to have the success that you want but it'll all be worth it when you get there and and i believe that as well yeah i have a, a quote that's in my home office that says uh, an entrepreneur is someone who lives uh the first part of their life like most people refuse to live so they can live the rest of their life like most people never have the chance to live. Uh, That's perfect. And that's, it's very wrong, very true, at least in my life and my world as my my wife will surely attest. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I couldn't do anything else, right? I don't think you could either at this point. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing for me that, um, you know, I don't define myself by my work, but I'm glad that my work is part of who I am, if that makes sense. Well, the last question I have for you, my friend, um, actually, for, before I get to that, how, how can people get a hold of you if they do want to connect with you or talk to you or learn more about what, what you got cooking? No, absolutely. I appreciate it. Um, so I am rbarbera at datacanopy.com. Um, and that's the fastest, easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, datacanopy.com is our website, and um, we have that man 24 7. Um, so if you're interested, please go check it out. And then uh, people can reach me directly at 301 775 7337. So, and that is actually my direct number, which I hope I don't regret putting out on this podcast, but it'll be good, I'm sure. So. It'll be a great sign if, if you do end up regretting it about how many uh, listeners we have. That would that would actually be awesome. But I I listened to your podcast. I was actually really pumped to get the invite. So just so you know, I am appreciative of this because I actually listened to it and I think it's great. So thank you, my friend. Appreciate that. Well, the last question is: Do you love data centers, Ryan? I do. I love data centers. 
Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And I will be talking to you here in the near future. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.